Dear friends, in this season, we have been listening to the topic of fellowship and community. We've heard much instruction about it. The Word of God gives much instruction for fellowship. It also shows that this is a, a grace of God, that he forms a community. And what an amazing thing that is. It's a grace. It's a calling. It's a calling also because the reality is that it is not always there. It is not always functioning the way it should be. And some of us, when we look back, we have painful memories of the opposite of fellowship, the opposite of community, hurt, and everything else. It can even be in the present. We, we hear the instruction, and sometimes you can... You go for lunch, and you leave lunch, and you can feel it's all, it can be so shallow. There's not the, the depth of that fellowship that you would desire. It can also be that later in an afternoon, you can still feel so alone. Or there can be challenges in the church, the local church that you're part of, or wherever that may be. There can be these challenges. There can be this lack of fellowship can also be something that you fear as you look forward into the future. How will it all go? And, and maybe in seminary you have these visions of ministry and what that will look like. And sometimes you can have the dreams of a, an idyllic or a flourishing ministry. But there can also be those fears that creep in. How will it really go? Will there be this, this bond in that church I serve of, of love and of, of holiness and of, of fellowship? Or will there be other things? Will there be division? Will there be problems? Will there be sin? Sometimes there can be those fears as you look to the future and you wonder, how will that go? But this morning, we need to look even further into the future. We need to look at something that we may know. We can have so many fears and hopes about the future, but in this morning, we are directed further to what we may know about the future. Do you see it? Verse 9, after this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. He says, lo, behold, here is an amazing sight. Here is a sight that demands our attention. Here is a sight for us to behold this morning in the midst of whatever we are going through. This sight of this great multitude. God is directing our eyes forward and upward to his throne and who is around his throne. And may, as we prayed already, the Spirit of Christ open our eyes this morning to see these things not seen so that we would live in light of this reality that is to come. We focus on these verses, on this great multitude bound around the throne, and we see it first as a united multitude, second a redeemed multitude, and third as a blessed multitude. First then as a great united multitude. 
We can also be so nearsighted when we, we look around and we, we see the church and we see the world and the world is so great and so many and the church can seem so few and that, that community of love and fellowship can seem so small in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of a divided world. It can all be true. But when we see only that, then we can also begin to have that thought, is it worth it? To devote your years preparing to serve the church, is it worth it to spend your life serving a church that is so small and that seems to be shrinking or whatever can go through our mind about the church? Is it worth it? And we see this vision. Behold, a great multitude stood before the throne, a multitude which no man could number. God reveals that sight to John and he records it in his word for us to see this morning. It's more than we can number. You remember Abraham? He used to look up, he used to see the stars, all those stars, and he could not count them, so shall his seed be. And here we see that seed as that innumerable multitude before the throne of God. And as you see that multitude, what do you see? It says it here. These people from all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, all political nations, whether it be the ancient empires of Babylon and Persia, or whether it be the, the current nations of America or Mali or whatever other country there may be upon this world, all ethnic groups are represented. You see the Zulu and you see the Lisu and all the different people in this world. You see all different cultures, you see all different societies, ancient and medieval and modern. You, you see all this grand variety of pe people, they've come out of all these different places. All these places that we've prayed for over these past weeks on Tuesdays and Thursdays, these different countries of the world. Do you see those people before the throne? There they are in glory. What a sight. This is the true United Nations, isn't it? where nations no longer matter because they're all united around the throne as one. They stand there. It's amazing. If you look at the previous chapter, there's that question, who shall stand? That's when that, those seals are being opened and God's judgments are coming upon the earth and the great ones of the earth, they cry out for the rocks and the mountains to cover them and to crush them and they say, who shall stand before the wrath of the Lamb? And here's an innumerable multitude that's standing. Why are they standing? We see they're clothed in white. And they have these palm branches of victory and of joy in their hands. They have overcome. They share in that victory over every enemy. And they're white. They have no stain. 
nothing that defiles them. They're there before the throne in white and with the palm branches of victory and joy. Again, what an amazing sight. You see it this morning. This is what awaits. Who can understand that all these ones can be there, standing in white, when they were by nature no better than anyone else, no better than the ones of chapter 6 who were crying out for the mountains to crush them rather than to, them to face the wrath of the Lamb. No different. How can that be? We hear it on their lips. Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. That's why they're there. It's because God is a God of salvation. He's the one who has, has, has thought out salvation. He's the one who secured it. He's the one who applied it. He's the one who perfected it. Salvation to our God. The first word that comes out of their mouth is salvation. That's why we're here. There's no other reason, no other explanation than God's salvation. They know this wasn't of them. They know they didn't contribute to that salvation. They know that left to themselves, they wouldn't have even asked for that salvation. But this salvation is of God. And therefore, they ascribe it all to this God. And how does it come? And it's also salvation to the Lamb, the Lamb who must receive all the honor, the Son of God who came into this world to be the sacrificial Lamb to secure salvation for those who deserve to be consumed. Do you see them? Salvation to our God. Is that what fills you with amazement this morning? That God is a God of salvation for sinners, for a sinner like me. If salvation is just a topic to study in soteriology in the class that some of you have this term, or in any other given class, it's just a topic of study that leaves you cold and there's something terribly wrong. It's not just a subject to study academically. This is the greatest wonder. that God is a God of salvation in the midst of a sinful, fallen world. It's a, such a wonder that the entire multitude there bursts forth in, in praise to God for his salvation. And as such, don't they also call others to join in that song? And there are others who join in. There's a great multitude, we find, that, that joins in with this song. There is this multitude of angels in verse 11 that are standing there around the throne and around the elders and around those four living beings and around these redeemed multitude 
And when they hear this song, salvation to our God, the first word that comes out of their mouth is amen. Amen. This is a salvation which they don't even need. They're sinless. They're holy. They've never sinned. And yet, when they hear of this, this song, they say, Amen, because their greatest desire is the glory of the God who reveals his glory in that salvation. And that's why they say, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. This God reveals his glory. And there's these seven words here, this, this perfect number of these, these aspects of, or these praises of God, which are magnified in that salvation. Because he must be praised for his salvation and for all that he does. And they do so, it says, forever and ever. Right now, we're, we're here. Right now, God is receiving praise for his salvation. Amid all the redeemed and all the angels around his throne. And they will forever and ever, it says. They'll never grow weary. Say, well, now we've said enough. Now we've thanked enough. Now we've praised enough. It's forever and ever. Is that what makes heaven heaven to you? That there God receives the glory and the praise that he is due. Is that what may give a desire even this morning? To be there. Maybe exactly because you realize how short you come in giving God the glory and the praise due to his name. which is so inexcusable. He's worthy of praise from all his creatures. But how much more if he saved a sinner like you or me? Then you can feel you come so short. You can give a desire. What will it be to give him all that praise? At the same time, sometimes there can be that thought, who am I to think that I will be there? I don't fit there. When I see who I am. But again, we ask, who are these? Actually, we don't ask this. John he sees and hears this, this sight. And then an elder comes and asks, what are these? In verse 13, what are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And John says, sir, thou knowest. It's good when we don't know all the answers and that we're wanting, willing, and desirous to be taught. And the elder tells him two things about this multitude. First, they came out of great tribulation. And second, they have made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. First, it says they've come out of great tribulation. They've only gained that palm branch of victory through conflict. Victory is meaningless without conflict. 
And so there was this tribulation, there was oppression, there was distress. Tribulation, that, that word is, is a word of pressure. What, what weighs you down, what, what presses and squeezes you. In the previous chapters, I've spoken about different tribulations, about poverty and sickness and pain, but especially persecution. And there's an emphasis on that in the book of Revelation, isn't there? And you think of how many have, have, have suffered persecution, how many have even lost their lives for the sake of Christ, and how many still today, as we sit in this quiet room, are in terrible places for the name of Christ. But here we have in this view where it will all lead, this redeemed multitude coming out of tribulation. Not just those who are persecuted may find tribulation. Paul exhorts the disciples in Antioch in Acts 14 to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Christ also says, doesn't he, in this world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We have to realize this is part of the Christian life. We can be so prone to, to want just our, our comfortable space, our comfortable life. We don't want the suffering, and we don't want... But Christ says that you will have tribulation. And you can expect that. As you go forward, as I go forward, you can expect that. But is that tribulation something to make us upset with God? Is that something to make us accuse God of wrong? Is that something to make us turn away from God? It's too hard. Ask those in hell whether that was a good thing for them to do. They'll say no. Ask those, this grand multitude before the throne, do you regret that Christ kept you in the hour of temptation, that he made you willing to endure rather than deny him? I'm sure Paul now knows in a far greater way what he said in 2 Corinthians 4, that our light affliction or our light tribulation works for us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Do you see that? Brought through the tribulation, through the difficulties, which God used in order to sanctify them and prepare them, brought them through to glory. And is the Lord not calling us to lift up our heads, to see that end in view? Whatever you go through and whatever awaits you, then if you belong to Christ, tribulation will not have the final word. Suffering will not have the final word. Glory will. This multitude was brought out of it. And how can it be? How can they be there? It says this, secondly, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the secret. That's the wonder. He's the Lamb. 
He's the lamb, the son of God, who gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. He's the one who shed his blood in order to deliver from our greatest problem of sin. He's the one, the son of God, God of God, who deserved all the praises of all, came down into this sinful world and was despised and rejected of men. He is the one who humbled himself so low as to not enjoy those praises, but the slander and the mocking as he was there upon the cross. And worst of all, who had the wrath of God come upon him and press out of him his very life of tribulation. And he did it, shedding his blood, entering into the judgment of God so that those who deserve it may be in, with him in glory. These have made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. It means everyone who was there was once as unclean as anyone else, filthy, and yet cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. They learned to cry out for that blood. They learned to see its preciousness, and they came to that fountain of cleansing where sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That blood satisfied God's just demand, cleansed all that guilt away. And so they may be there, faultless before the throne. And so if there's anyone here who says, I feel so unfit to be there, that makes you so fit, a Savior who shed his blood to wash away such sin and fit for that place. Who are those? They've washed their garments and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I looked, and lo, a multitude. You see it this morning. You see also not only a redeemed, but a blessed multitude. Verse 15 continues and says, Therefore, brought out of tribulation, washed in the blood, they may enjoy this supreme blessedness. And, and listen to these, these final verses, also in light of the whole theme of community that we have been listening to. Here in verse 15, we have the place of supreme fellowship. They're before the throne of God. They're bound to the one on the throne, and so they're bound together. Before the throne is a description of them all. It doesn't say these are closer and these are farther and these are first class and these are second class people. No, it just describes them all in the same way. They're all before the throne. They're one before the throne. And they all rejoice in being there together with all the others who are before the throne. And they all do the same thing. 
maybe in different ways, but they all, it says, serve him day and night in his temple. There is this worshipful, worshipful service of God. There's this priestly service in his temple, in his dwelling place. They are there. And again, certain ones are not singled out as these ones have more important service and these have less important service. And we don't read anything of that. We just read they all serve in his temple. They're all focused on the same one, the God who is there and being devoted to him in worship of him. And that's why it says, he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. He'll come to dwell over them. It's, it's a word for, for tabernacling over them. It's that expression of, of shelter and protection and fellowship. All there will be with him, and there'll be none outside. They'll be together. Here is the, the fulfillment of all that was signified in the, in the tabernacle. Here we have God dwelling. Again, not just with the favorites in the multitude, but with them all. And verse 16 adds, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. And verse 17 adds, God shall wipe away all tears, literally every tear from their eyes. Everyone will be delivered and eternally protected from every adverse situation. No scorching heat. All that scorching heat will be in hell, and it will not be there. The brilliance of the glory of God will not scorch them. And there will be nothing to make them suffer. Nothing at all. And there will also be no unsatisfied desires represented in this hunger and thirst. They're all be full. Full. Fully satisfied with God. Are their hearts desire receiving? No hunger. In fact, there won't be a single tear of sorrow. It's become so personal and so tender here, doesn't it? That God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. It becomes, it's not just this grand multitude, but so personally, every tear wiped away. There they come out of great tribulation. And those tears are wiped away because of his loving care for every single one in that multitude. And those tears will be gone. There'll be no sorrow at all. No pain. No grief. For anyone. Verse 17 adds, the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and lead them unto the living fountains of waters. The lamb is the shepherd in glory. He will shepherd his entire flock so personally. And also the whole flock together 
Again, it's so beautiful, isn't it? It doesn't just make any distinction between the sheep here. He will shepherd them all, and they will all have that relation to him. And there'll be no tension among the sheep or with the shepherd. In fact, he'll lead them to the fountains of the waters of life to enjoy the fullness of life together. Abundance for all will bind all together and bind them to the shepherd lamb and bind them to the triune God. Here, my friends, is everlasting community. As Edward said, heaven is a world of love. That's what it is. Perfect fellowship. And this is no dream. This is reality. It's a reality that has begun for a great number already and soon will be perfected forever. God reveals it to us this morning so that we would know it. We would see it. And he reveals it to us, not just like entertainment that distracts you from reality for a moment and then you have to go back to reality. No, he reveals it to us so that we would live and we would minister in light of this reality. Seeing these things stirs up two things, doesn't it? A desire to enjoy the foretaste of that already now. And also the desire to be a means to prepare others for this future. Just, just see them again. Salvation to our God. That's their proclamation. And do they not call us to join that song here below? And that's the amazing thing. This, this song, Salvation to Our God, it joins heaven and earth. And this song may be sung even in the lowest depths of this earth. Think of how it was sung by one who was in the, in the lowest prison. In the belly of a whale. As a disobedient prophet, or a, a great fish, a disobedient prophet. In his helplessness. Now what does he sing in the end of Jonah 2? Salvation is of the Lord. And so in the midst of us learning our utter helplessness and our sinfulness and our unworthiness, in the midst of that all, to, to find salvation in him and confess salvation is of the Lord, is actually the beginning of this song. It will have no end. Brothers and sisters, shall we not more and more learn this song and that this song would fill us with amazement that he is a God of salvation. So full, so free, in the Lamb and for his sake. And will that not constrain us to desire to be a means to bring that salvation to others who are still in bondage, who are still in the brokenness of life, who are still under the wrath of God? Is that not what motivates 
to minister to others, knowing that salvation is of God. If you didn't believe that, why would you be going into ministry? It'd be a waste of time. But salvation is of the Lord, and that's why you can prepare to serve God in different ways, because you know God is able to use even someone like me to bring that message of the gospel, to reach also others, and to save them so that they also would join in this song, Salvation to Our God. Is that not what will constrain you to desire to minister to God's people amidst the remaining sin they find within themselves? And so easily they can then just, just see themselves and be so discouraged that you desire to, to, to show them that salvation is to our God and is from our God. And that would encourage them on their journey to this place where they will proclaim in perfection salvation to our God. Shall we then not labor to see the church knowing, experiencing, and living out of this wonder that salvation is of the Lord because there's nothing that so binds people together as this common experience and conviction. Haven't you found that? When you talk to people and salvation is a wonder to them, that's what binds together. Salvation to our God. And as we see this great multitude coming out of great tribulation, is that not such an encouragement for us? To having this great cloud of witnesses to lay aside every weight of sin, run the race, to fight the good fight of faith and endure hardness as a soldier of Jesus Christ. If we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. Our lives are not about our own ease. It's about the glory of this God who must and shall receive honor. And shall we then not also desire to, to be a means of help for those saints in tribulation struggling point them forward, to point them upward to this future. Friends, I looked, and lo, a great multitude. It's not just a sight for an aged apostle John, but through him we are shown this sight. And so in the midst of all our studies and all our focus, even in these weeks on the the assignment due dates which are coming so close we can become so nearsighted but in this passage of the word of god we're directed forward we're directed above to see what is the goal of this all is it not this great multitude before his throne the greatest wonder if i may be there and if I may be used to bring others there. Let's pray. O triune God, we pray to thee, giving thee thanks for thy word, which shows us things which are not seen with our physical eyes, 
but are so real, that salvation is indeed of thee. Thou art the Alpha and the Omega, and all things between, as a great God of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And we give thee thanks for that, else we would be most miserable in this life and forevermore. And, O Lord, we pray to, to fill us with that wonder of thy salvation, that we may know and behold the Lamb slain and yet glorious now at thy right hand, that we may live out of him. Also in the midst of every distress and pressure and tribulation we may go through, we pray, O oh God, to lift up our heads, that we may see, indeed, this future and this reality around thy throne, and that we may already begin to enjoy what will be enjoyed in fullness. And use us, Lord, wherever thou dost place us, to be a means to gather yet others who will one day be in that innumerable multitude. We pray to bless us further in this day and be with us in thy mercy and receive our thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.